Awesome. Well, it's been great moving uh, to Bend and to Antioch. And if you've ever moved uh, into a new church, you can understand the hospitality that is there, right? And where else on earth can you move to a new town and six months later know 200 or 250 names, haven't eaten meals with multiple families, um, and have an entirely new community? And this is the beauty of the church. Isn't that awesome? So, I want to give a shout out to some of those who have meant the most to me since I've come here. And don't worry, this is a transition into the sermon, um, so there's a purpose. I want to thank uh, Neil Cole for that, that um, dang, what are those called? Those cinnamon rolls from Sparrows? Ocean rolls. All right, thank you to Neil Cole for the ocean roll and help me think about the lawyer side of youth ministry. Ryan and Penny Fraker for dinner food and encouragement, Caden and Eliana Fraker for using your allowance money to buy me your favorite cereal when I moved into a new house, Chris and Madel Fries for housing me, feeding me, and letting me ride that road bike in your garage, Jason and Connie Gabbert for your generosity, Evan Hendricks for visiting my home, encouraging me, feeding everyone, and heading up the search committee, Linda Van Vorst for being the best children's ministry pastor in Oregon, and an absolutely huge encouragement to me in the offices, Tish Mortensen for literally everything, John Paladacek for fixing my car and charging me about $5, (laughs) Paul Hines for telling me about the best mountain bike trails, Nate Gerhardt, Will Lawrence, and Johnny Oler for teaching me to rock climb. Tom and Maria Rowley for dinner and the continuous encouragement. The Heartstocks for dinner. Justin Scott for taking me out on his canoe for lunch and giving me free Addy Max ice cream once. Kip Jones and Ken Weitzma for staying in touch with me since 2010. Gary and Carrie Sunberg for your huge hearts and your youthful encouragement. Rick Gerhardt for sharing your abundant knowledge with our teens and with me. Pete and Jen Kelly for showing me what marriage family and ministry should really look like. The entire extended Kent family for inviting me to join you for every major holiday, 4th of July last year. Uh, Aaron Wells for the lunches, the ridiculous hugs, and the encouragement. Mike and Tiffany Ribera for joyfully cooking for everyone in Oregon about 30 times. The Warwick family and the Stilson family for absolutely being my family. The Hardens for your abundant generosity to me in our youth ministry. Cameron and Kristen Reynolds for your extreme generosity. The elders, the lead team, and the search committee for inviting me to come here. The entire Antioch youth leadership team for loving our students so well. And above all, Fred, Mel, Freddie, and Jordan Kent. I'm already crying. Um, For adopting me into your family since 2010. For the food, the bed, the conversations, letting me borrow the truck, letting me cry and laugh with you, and for knowing me better than anyone else in Oregon. Cheers to you. Give yourself a round of applause. The feels, right? The feels. So I have a story about Fred and Mel Kent. Um, As awesome as community is, sometimes it's not awesome, right? I lived in their house since when I came here for about a month, a month and a half, and I like to burn candles. 
Uh, cinnamon flavored ones are the best. And so I'm burning a candle at night. I'm just kind of hanging out in my room. It's probably 11.30 or 12. And apparently the smoke alarm went off, which it did really loudly. And they're all sleeping. And so I'm in my room and they open the door. And, you know, uh, when you're in something, you don't realize it's changing. So I didn't realize how smoky my room became because of this candle. And you got to trim your wicks, friends. Trim those wicks. Anyways, so I set the fire alarm off, and Fred and Mel come in, and of course I wake up the boys, and they're all like groggy. I'm just like, oh my goodness, this is the worst. So I apologize, and I paid penance, mowing the lawn a couple times. I didn't actually. But well, it's funny, right? That's a funny story. Ha ha, we woke you up at night, and you had, to, you had to get out of bed. But in reality, for this huge list of awesomeness, isn't community sometimes pretty inconvenient, Right? Um, I think America and the ruts that we're in nowadays are moving more and more towards an individualistic mindset. And while we enjoy community and what we reap from it, in many ways, our interaction with community is still very individualistic. Um, and I have some examples. Um, we have, our houses have moved from having front porches to having back porches. I want to come home from work and I don't want to engage with my neighborhood I want to sit on my back porch with my fence where no one else can see me. I come home from work and my neighborhood looks like a scene from the book of Eli, right? Lots of old cars and no humans. Um, And what's become of the American dream, right? This fight uh, to retire at 55, own a boat, drive the car that I want, vacation and travel. And this default mindset, we fall in this rut of like working hard and disciplining our lives to this end which is uh, retirement, the American dream, and the white picket fence. And maybe we don't all believe that, but in Bend, as Pete talked about in the City series, uh, so often the mindset of Bend is one of recreation um, and self-enjoyment. We complain that Bend is expanding because why? Because that means there's people coming, and that means traffic and patience and annoying, annoying people in my world. Um, And also even social media, right? We call it social media, but in reality, it's pretty uh, self-glorifying. My profile picture, my status, my updates. You open Instagram, that little orange heart appears, and you feel good because someone interacted with you, right? Um, And you're feeding from the community, but we we want to remain isolated from the community. Um, I think that's that's something we can all relate to. Some of us are introverts or extroverts, um, but I think that truth is what I want to build on um, as, we, as, we con- as we consider kindness as a fruit of the Spirit uh, in the book of Galatians. And so, please open up your Bible, if you have it, and turn with me um, to Galatians chapter 5, where we find Paul's discourse on the fruit of the Spirit. So, Galatians chapter 5. And I want to set up Galatians for all, for all the sermons we've had about these fruits. Um, we haven't talked an extremely large amount on the context of Galatians. We open up to Galatians 5. We read chapter, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Uh, many of us have those memorized. Um, and what we've been doing... Uh, in this sermon series, is taking one of these uh, virtues that we might call it, or reflections of God, and drawing uh, principles from that to that from another uh, place in Scripture. 
Um, and so, but I want to actually pause in Galatians and just set up the scenario here um, and just highlight something that might speak to our culture's move towards individualism and what that means as we think about what actually is kindness, all right? So Paul writes Galatians to a church in Galatia that is primarily having an argument about the extent to which Christians or followers of Christ should still remain Jewish, all right? So um, these Jewish believers are pushing for adherence to the law of Moses in order to remain in right standing with God. Paul's argument is that um, adherence to the law was never actually a means to your righteousness in the first place, and um, that life by the Spirit actually fulfills the law. The Judaizers' argument is that if we say, if we abandon the law, then to, then to what about our morality? In other words, you've come to know Christ, you feel security in him, you're forgiven, your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. Now let's heel-click ourselves into the sunset and go on sinning because grace is there, right? And this is Paul's argument in Romans as well. Like, no, actually, um, the fruit of being unified with Jesus actually fulfills the law because the law is summed up in one phrase, love your neighbor as yourself. And so our, the gospel that we believe is not primarily viewed individually, but it's viewed communally. And thus, um, both Ken and Rick Gerhardt spoke on um, the word justice and righteousness. And I'm sure if you're Antiochers, you've heard the word justice quite a bit. Um, but we have the same Greek word. And often, um, whether it's from the fundamentalist movement or maybe this modern evangelical movement of me and my Bible in my bedroom with my devotions and my quiet time, um, we've considered righteousness to be individual piety, right? I have the best, I have right thoughts, I live well, me and Jesus are okay, um, and that's what it means to be righteous, a righteous person. Um, but when we recognize the context of the word justice and righteousness, we recognize that that's only half of the story, that the call to righteousness and the call to justice is actually to love neighbor. And so we're not stagnant individual Christians just worrying about our own personal piety, but we're actively loving the community, bringing about justice and righteousness um, for Bend, um, for Oregon, for America, and for the world, right? Um, and so I want to I show that to you, and I actually want to start in... Galatians 5, verse 13, all right? Can you turn with me there? Galatians 5, 13. Paul says this, You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. All right, so you have freedom in Christ. Don't use that as an opportunity to go on sinning selfishly, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he quotes Leviticus. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And then in verse 16, he goes on and describes what I call um, the economy of me. Can you all say the economy of me? All right. I was going to say the economy of moi, but I don't even know what that is. Is that French? All right. Let's just call it me because we're in Oregon. The economy of me. All right, and isn't this really the nature of sin, the nature of the fall, is that we go to God or others and we say, my way, not your way, right? And so here we go. And Paul says this, walk by the Spirit, um, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, 
and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other. We got it. To keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So as born-again believers, we do have righteous desires to love, to bring about joy and peace and kindness, to be gentle. Now the works of the flesh, that is the economy of me, are this, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Um, And so Paul lists a couple categories, sexual sins, communal sins, sins that have to do with alcohol. But in reality, all of these affect the community, especially the explicit ones, simply divisions, right? Which is what? The opposite of community. He goes on to describe um, what I want to call the economy of loving your neighbor, um, which is as a response to the salvation we've had, loving the community that we're in. And he says this, um, but the fruit of the Spirit, oh, this is 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, right? So he's saying, if you are, if you are keeping in step with God's Spirit, who has redeemed you, these, these are the fruits, these are the works, this is what it looks like to be in step with the Spirit, and they're all centered around loving neighbor. And since loving neighbor fulfills the law, our conversations about adhering to the law um, need to be replaced with our conversations of keeping in step with God's spirit. Pretty simple. And reading Galatians under that framework, it will, it will really help uh, make a whole lot of sense. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another, right? And so we can see um, this, this relation to loving neighbor, um, the economy of self, the economy of loving neighbor, right? Um, and so today, uh, we're going to talk about kindness. Um, and, and in many ways, these fruits of the Spirit are like faces of a diamond, right? So um, we often think about the Holy Spirit kind of like Yoda and Star Wars and the Force, right? Like we have Jesus and we have God and we have this like the Force, the Holy Spirit. Um, in reality, it's, it's the Spirit and the nature of Jesus um, manifesting in us. And so to be filled with the Spirit is to look like Christ. And so the fruit of the Spirit um, are fruit that bear a bear in our lives that look like Jesus, pretty simply. Um, And so Paul gives other lists, so we don't need to distinguish them so much that like, well, now we're talking about kindness, which is entirely different than patience or love, right? They're not. They're they're, they're faces of a diamond. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love is, love is patient. Love is kind. These are also fruits of the Spirit. Colossians 3, Paul says this, um, in the context of saying we've died and our life is now in Christ, put on, um, this, is, this is a command as well, well, we'll get to that, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, right? 
And so, so this is what kindness is. And I, uh, so we're here on the word kindness. And I was thinking about what a sermon on kindness would look like. Now, last week I had a heart attack. Be, oh, sorry, um, not literally. Ah, that's the worst. Uh, so Rick Gerhardt spoke last week, and he actually thought he was speaking on kindness. So he did a little intro to a sermon about how he was in the Houston airport with our Nicaragua team, and he was learning patience. And then it dawned on him that he wasn't speaking on kindness. He was actually speaking on patience. And I was sitting right there, um, a little bit nervous, because I've been writing my sermon on kindness for the last two weeks. And I thought Rick was speaking on kindness. Uh, so I was going to have to go either to goodness or back to patience, depending on what we decided. Um, and so I'm thinking about, well, what, what, what's a sermon on kindness? I mean, we kind of all know what it is. I could kind of sit up here and say, well, be more kind. I mean, like, um, conjure up kindness. Um, don't be so frustrated. Um, but I didn't want to go that route because we kind of, that's kind of the route we live in anyways, right? We know the fruits of the Spirit. We know we're striving to, to become like that. Um, uh, so I want to take it a different route, and it's going to be awesome. And I want to invite you in um, to that journey today. But before we get there, um, I want to, the biblical word for kindness um, seems to talk more about being gentle um, as a passive response. So when when the anger and the frustration and the shortness rises up in you, that what comes out is not that, but it's gentleness um, as kind of a passive response, um, or it's kind of an active response. And then the passive response is, is there is an element of grace, right? So um, you think about what kindness is, it's, it's gentleness and graciousness that is actually lived out, right? You can't be kind, um, in, by yourself on an island, right? You need a community to be kind to and with. So to, illust- to talk about what I think speaks to the economy of me and our push towards individualism and what that means to kindness and then the economy of Christ and a nuance that I think we miss when we think about kindness, I invite you to turn to one of my favorite parts of scripture of all time, talking about two of my favorite people of all time, and it's John chapter 21 um, with Peter and Jesus. John chapter 21. And let's discover what we can learn about kindness from this situation. So John chapter 21. Let's look at verses 1 to 3. So Jesus has... um, been crucified and he has risen again. He is, um, they have discovered the empty tomb and he has appeared a couple times as the resurrected Christ. Chapter 21, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Which some of you relate to, right? We like to fish. They said to him, we will go with you. Nice. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So before we continue, I want to bring you a little bit into the life of Peter. 
Peter wanted to go fishing um, because he was a fisherman, right? He was called to follow Jesus, to make Jesus his rabbi early on. He did. He dropped his nets and followed Christ for three years as Jesus taught, uh, performed miracles, instructed the disciples about how to bring about the kingdom on earth. Um, And he, Peter gets roasted, right? Raise your hand if you have made fun of Peter at once in your life. All right, so two of you are honest. All right, we always talk about Peter. It's either doubting Thomas or Peter gets the worst, worst of it, right? We know Peter. He's, um, you all know someone like this. Uh, They're quick to speak. They're always the first to do something. They're the eager beaver, um, maybe a little bit too confident. Um, And this is Peter, and and we roast him for it. But he's actually the first one to get out of the boat and walk on water. He experienced um, the transfiguration with Jesus, and he was not only one of the many disciples and one of the 12 closer disciples, but also one of a, one of a close threesome with uh, Peter, James, and John with Jesus um, and experienced some moments that none of the other disciples did. And so he knew Jesus very well, and he had to come to grips with the reality that the Messiah of Israel was going to die. And this is, I think, Peter's hardest um, belief to overcome. And if you read through the, through the Gospels, you see, like, Jesus, you don't have to die, do you? Like, no, like, we'll take him out. And he pulls out the knife and cuts off the ear. He's like, Let's, we're ready to go, Jesus. Like, here we go. Um, and this, this idea that the Savior of the world must die is a huge paradigm shift for Peter. And it's one that led to perhaps the most shameful moment of his life and we all know that to be is when he denied Christ. And I want to read a couple, couple scriptures that talk about that. So, so Jesus had the Lord's Supper with his disciples um, in John chapter 13. And I, wanna, I just want to read this text to you. Sorry, we're going to read a lot of the Bible in church today. So, Okay, these are the jokes. Uh, if the jokes come, you have to laugh. It makes me feel affirmed. All right. I don't have a lot of jokes in this sermon. I've, I've written sermons before that have a lot of jokes. It's pretty serious, so I'm talking about kindness. All right. Here we go. John chapter 13. You don't have to turn there. I just want to read this to you. Um, Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet, a very humbling and servant, servant act. And Simon Peter said to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now but you will follow afterwards. Death. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Gong. Oh, man. Uh, Mark says it this way. Um, and there's a nuance that I want to highlight here. After they had sung a hymn, they went up to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee, and I will meet you while you're fishing. He leaves that part out. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. Peter the loudmouth, right? Even though Jesus... Jesus, even though they all may fall away, I won't. I won't. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. 
Luke and Matthew add this to this story. They say, I am ready to go to prison and to death with you. And Matthew says, even if I must die with you, I will, den- I will not deny you. What do we see here? Jesus, the Messiah, is going to die. Peter, the eager beaver, is confident that he will lose his life for Jesus. And Jesus says, actually, Peter, before the rooster crows, so 12-hour time period, you're going to deny me three times. And so Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He goes on trial overnight. Um, and we know that Peter is standing around a charcoal fire. And at that charcoal fire, he interacts with some um, of the people standing there and three times denies Jesus. Um, says, I don't know the man. Ten, eight hours after just saying this to Jesus. And, and Peter knew Jesus well. Jesus called him. Um, he, was, he was in the inner squad. And this is, what, this is what Matthew and Luke say. After the rooster crowed, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Mark says this, he broke down and wept, right? Can't we relate to that, though? Yeah. We, we're, we're the eager beavers to say we love Christ. And we look at our lives, we recognize what we've done, and we have nothing but to do but weep. And so this is the Peter that Jesus meets on the beach in John 21. A Peter who's coming to grips with the realization that the Savior of the world has died and is full of shame internally and in his community as kind of the leader who crumbled. And so it fits. Hey, let's go fishing, right? It's the one thing we know to do. I'm hungry. Um, It's not entirely in itself wrong, but it doesn't seem to be um, the kind of ministry that they were trained up to do as far as bringing about the kingdom of Christ. So let's look at verse 4. So they went out in the boat. Uh, They caught nothing. Surprise, this sounds familiar, right? What's familiar so far? A fishing boat, Peter, they fished and they caught nothing. Just wait, it gets better. Verse 4, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, which we think is John, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter, the eager beaver, still with ounces of boldness, let's say, Heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea, like thinking first, clearly. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled, Uh, The net ashore, 153 fish. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said, come and have breakfast, right? You're hungry. You've been fishing all night. You're cold and tired and you smell like fish. You smell like the sea. 
and you're coming in here and I made you breakfast. I'll meet your, I'll meet your immediate needs. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord, um, less because they were concerned about a, um, a sassy response from Jesus, but more because they, they knew it was the Lord. So to ask, it didn't make sense. Um, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. Now, this is the third time that Jesus revealed uh, to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And so, Jarrell, what does this have to do with kindness? What does that have to do with kindness? Um, I want to show you the kindness that Jesus shows Peter from verses 15 to 19, considering the context that we're in right here. I want to propose to you that this type of kindness is the kindness that we must show our community, and it's not what we might think it is. Moreover, um, that unless we put ourselves in the shoes of Peter first, we'll never be able to show this kindness to our community. So let's look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. All right, a couple things we should know. Have you ever had a friend, a good, a good close friend, and there's just been kind of some conflict going on, and you know, maybe you do the avoiding thing, or uh, you see them, and then your heart rate goes up. You know what I'm talking about. Um, I would imagine for Peter, that's pretty similar, right? Man, Jesus, the last time, I denied you three times, and now I'm seeing you again. Um, and it's just kind of this, like, awkward beach encounter. <laughs> and Jesus enters into the awkwardness, and he takes initiative. And this story is, is Peter's redemption and catalyst for ministry for the rest of his life. So Jesus asked Simon the first time, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? There's a couple things he could be referring to. The fishing boat, um, do you love me more than you love the disciples? But in reality, Jesus is referencing Peter's comment that even if they will deny you, I will never deny you. Um, and so Jesus, in kind of a bold way that we maybe wouldn't think is kind, says, Peter, do you love me more than these guys love me? Like you said you did. Um, Peter's like, ah. he says, Lord, you know that I love you. And what's interesting about that is he doesn't say, God, yeah, yeah, look at all I've done. Like, you know I love you. And it's just this argument. It's this broken Peter. And he says, ah, Jesus, I have no defense other than, that, other than that you know that I do. He said, feed my lambs. Already calls him to, to go love the community. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, do you know that I love you? And Jesus said, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And at first read, it can kind of seem like Jesus is like poking at Peter a little bit. And Peter is doing this prove yourself thing. But in reality, um, what's happening is that Jesus is, is entering into the awkwardness and entering into the mess and giving Peter the chance 
to three times say that he loves him and to three times redeem him in, into loving the community. And this is public. Um, and so P- Jesus is taking a broken and shamed Peter who has, who has denied Jesus as he was dying for him, unjustly misunderstood, um, and he took someone that ran away from him, um, and he is entering back into that life, into the awkwardness, into the mess, and publicly redeeming and forgiving Peter and reinstating him into leadership and uh, his call to love the community. Right? And this is the kindness of Jesus. And I want to show us one more thing in, in, in verse 18. He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, which sounds familiar, right? Not you will deny me three times, but this. When you were young, Peter, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. Spoiled brat. Just kidding. Y'all, you hadn't laughed in a while. It's getting super serious, so cut the ice. Uh, But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. What? Follow me again? Um, This reference of stretching out your hands is what? A cross. says, Peter, when you were young, you used to do what you want. Now that you're old, like... uh, you lost that and you will actually die, right, for me. And um, we have various historical accounts of Peter's death and most would say that he actually was crucified um, in the name of Jesus. Um, And so I want to show you some parallel events. In Luke 4, Peter has a miraculous catch of fish. In John, there is a miraculous catch of fish. In John 13, Jesus washes Peter's feet before he denies him, showing him service and care. In John 21, Jesus makes Peter breakfast. Just a simple need, kind of like Elijah. Um, Peter says, even though they fall away, I will not. Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Peter denies Jesus around a charcoal fire. And the only other time in our whole New Testament charcoal fire is mentioned is John 21. And Jesus redeems Peter around a charcoal fire, right? You know, you know smell, smell can carry memory with it, right? And I imagine when Peter smells that charcoal fire, it doesn't bring back good memories. Peter denied Jesus three times. He confesses his love three times. He had public hu- humiliation, and now he has public redemption. He was called to be a fisher of men, and now he's called to be a fisher of sheep. Jesus is saying, Peter... I have loved you. I have fed you. Our relationship is so redeemed that you are free to no longer focus on maintaining your own right standing, but to focus on caring for your inconvenient community. And in the same way I died so that you might have true life, you also must die so that the community can have life. This is what it means to reflect my spirit, to have the fruit of my spirit in your life, to offer each day as a living sacrifice, marking your love both of neighbor and of me. And in John 21, the kindness of Jesus redeems Peter. 
It's not synonymous with being nice. It's not synonymous with forgive and forget or being wishy-washy. Um, and there are four things, I think, that we can learn about kindness from Jesus. And here's the first one, that it, it takes initiative. It enters into the awkward moments um, when there's tension. And um, kindness is, takes the first step towards that. Um, secondly, it acknowledges the brokenness. There was definitely an increased level of discomfort before Peter felt comfort, right? So he had to face what had been done. Jesus didn't skirt around the issue. Um, Jesus forgives him entirely, as he always does. There's no remnants of, of hurt there. And then Jesus' aim, fourth, is he aims at complete redemption. He's moving, for, he's moving forward through the issue, looking to tomorrow, not dwelling on what happened, although he acknowledges it. And I think it's very similar to the woman who was caught in adultery, um, who Jesus says, go and sin no more, right? Um, he uses very few words in his redemption of souls. And so I want to reflect on what, what the kindness of Jesus can say to the economy of me as we interact with our community. And here's where I think many of us get it wrong is that we view kindness through a lens of what I call a silo of kindness. Do you know what a silo is? So I, I'm from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. If you didn't know, we have farms there. Um, my, my mom grew up on a farm, milking cows and all that stuff. Crazy stuff. Um, and so my parents, this is, the true, this is a true fact. You ready for this? My parents, um, if they're trying to estimate how high something is, They'll like step back and be like, hmm, well, well, we all know how tall a silo is. So that's about 10 feet shorter than that. So it's this much feet. And I'm just like, kidding me? Who are you? Um, you could do some trigonometry maybe nowadays. But anyways, a silo is what? We, we store up a bunch of food in it to feed our cows. And so I think we view our lives through the lens as we are individual silos in this picture like a giant farm full of just silos of people, right? And our goal in the economy of me is to store up resources so that um, if something bad happens, whether it's um, maybe I need emotional capacity, I need financial resources, my time, my energy, my focus, um, and we want to reach a certain level of security before we dish out to other silos in the community, right? So it's like my silo is at 80% and yours is at 20. So I can probably give you 10% of my grain to kind of keep you going. But I'm just, I really want to like hoard my stuff, right? I'm not, just, I'm not just talking money. I'm talking time, emotional energy, um, pride, right? Um, forgiveness is an, uh, an effort in humility. And when we view kindness through this lens, um, we hope that someone can give us grain when we need it. Um, and we kind of feel good about giving out grain, but what we really want is to keep some of the grain that we have, right? Um, and this is how we view kindness, or maybe any fruit of the Spirit, in our community within the economy of me. What I want to propose, what I think Christ is calling Peter to in verse 18, is that we must not view kindness through the economy of me, but we must view kindness through the through the economy of sacrifice. 
And what I mean by sacrifice is not a little bit of sacrifice, but ultimate sacrifice. Is that in order to follow me, you must lose your life. That love is what? Laying down your life for your friends. That um, offer your bodies as a living, continuous sacrifice. And what we see in Peter's life is that for 30 years he did, and he ended ultimately dying. And that in the, in the economy of sacrifice, rather than silo, we recognize that we, that we have nothing. We are Peter on the beach, around the charcoal fire, with our shame, before Christ, and we started with nothing. This is why, can you hear me now? Nice, it was hitting this gnarly beard that I have. It's a real nice beard. Um, I'm no Jacob Radomsky. So, This is what Paul is saying in Galatians 2. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's bearing his reflection, bearing his marks. And the life I now live um, in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And it's an entire paradigm shift. We are not silos. Our silos are bone dry. And all that we have is recognized in the forgiveness and redemption that Christ gave us. And so as we interact with an inconvenient community, we're not just dishing out some of our resources for silos. We're saying like, all of me is a dying sacrifice to my community. And I'm not kind to to do this. I'm kind because as someone who is in union with Christ, living in an inconvenient community, we we cherish those opportunities to reflect the love of Christ on our neighbor, and that's exactly what Jesus is calling Peter to do. I show kindness regardless of their merit or regardless of what it costs me. We struggle to show kindness to the outcasts who haven't done enough to deserve kindness. You haven't, you haven't tried hard enough, so I don't want to give you kindness. But that's also Peter. We've done, we struggle to show kindness to someone who's done something to forfeit that, which is also Peter, the enemy. Um, and so this, I actually have, does that make sense? Kind of a paradigm shift of our lens. And I have three scenarios, uh, three ways that we dodge kindness in, in the world. Um, and they're actually, they, the last one's the kicker. But the first two are pretty legit. Um, the first one is that we, for, we, we detour kindness in the name of tough love. We detour kindness in the name of tough love. You know, you've had those situations where, like, this guy, he just really needs some tough love, you know? Um, I think it's a bit of a misnomer. Um, and we think tough love means, like, tough love. As opposed to, <laughs> thanks for the clarity, drill. Like, you just said the same thing. <laughs> You're the worst dictionary ever. Uh, we can't understand this guy. Who let him preach? Uh, Pete did. So uh, his email is in your bulletin. You can complain. All complaints go to him. Um, we, we talk all the time. What about tough love, though? Don't people need to like have tough love? And I, I think, in reality, the misnomer, um, we recognize that tough love means... Like, it's difficult, it's a difficult love to give. Like, I think in many ways what Jesus did with Peter was tough love. It's not skirting around the issue, it's calling it and naming it. 
Um, and we use that as an excuse to kind of be harsh or short or kind of hang someone out to dry. And it's really just like 1% of the conversation, right? Of all the times in our lives that we could be kind, um, arguing about when it's tough love is really just a small portion um, of when we should uh, live out kindness. Uh, but it is a, it is a valid um, concern, and I would actually argue that Jesus gave Peter tough love. The second is that we set up personal boundaries, and we say, Jesus, I mean, we say, Jarrell, just call myself Jesus, that's weird. Uh, Jarrell, like, well, I got to have personal boundaries. Um, and I actually agree, I actually agree with that. Um, I need to work on that myself. And I think that is a legitimate argument, but again, it's just 2% of the time, right? The rest of, I mean, we can have that conversation when it arises, but for the most part, kindness comes in these small, bur- uh, these small bursts. Um, and um, it is a healthy tension, um, but again, both tough love and boundaries are still through the lens of a sacrificial life, not a silo life, right? And then finally, and, uh, and here's the kicker, guys, and here's where, here's, where, here's where we can access the power, is that we struggle to show kindness to others because we can't reconcile God's kindness to us, right? How could it be that me, this is going to be the worst grammar, how could it be that, that God would show me kindness? Like, it, it can't be true, right? If, if I was Peter, I wouldn't have jumped out of the boat. I would have hidden in the bottom, right? And I would have, like, shoulders down, head bowed, like, marched up to the beach and been like, oh, I'm sorry, Jesus, right? This, this shame and this um, weighing the scales of what we did versus what it costs to forgive, um, and I think that deep down, if we put ourselves on the beach with Peter and, recon- and recognize that Jesus hasn't, that in Jesus Christ, God showed the fullest extent of his kindness, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that when I recognize that my silo has, has been bone dry since day one, and that all that I have is only because of the redemption of Christ, um, then whatever fault my neighbor has done to me is, is small in comparison to that, right? And that, um, that dismantles the economy of pride, the economy of me, and our silos, and we live as free in Christ, givers of love. And Peter really had a transformation. I want to read to you something that Peter said in the book of First Peter that he writes, and if you read First Peter after reading the Gospels or Second Peter, you recognize just so much change in Peter. And here's what he says um, in the context of suffering unjustly: For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness or justice. By his wounds, you have been healed. 
for you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And your call, like Peter, is to meet Jesus on the beach and let him cook you breakfast around a charcoal fire and redeem you as the great shepherd so that you can then go freely, love your neighbor, and feed the sheep. And I challenge us, as Antioch community in Bend, what would it look like if on a Sunday morning we were saturated with kindness, downtown saturated with kindness, um, at restaurants, as we travel on the road, right? Road rage is great. So I want to close, close with this. When we find ourselves in a community of inconvenience, whether friends or family or outcasts or enemies or store clerks or bad drivers or selfish neighbors, we must remember that, like Peter, Jesus made us breakfast. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, we will climb out of our smelly fishing boats and meet Jesus on the shore. And the only thing smelling worse than our bodies is the shame we carry. And Jesus takes those moments, not ignoring them, but meeting us there in the stink of it all. And he redeems them. He forgives us. He bears our iniquity with his sacrifice. And he invites us to eat a meal that we don't deserve. Saints, this is the lens through which we serve, sacrifice, and love our beloved community of inconvenience. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you have given us the ultimate act of kindness, the ultimate security, and as we wrestle with the flesh trying to store up our own resources of time and energy and money and energy, um, may we as a community of Antioch um, be saturated with kindness to one another, to bend um, and to the world. Thank you for your great love. In Christ's name, amen.